Thank you, Juju, and good morning to everybody. I'm going to invite our panelists to take the stage. We have a uh, great group of people to talk about the 2020 elections and much more. Senator Claire McCaskill is here with us. <laughs> Former Representative Steve Israel, who was the uh, chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, Rick Tyler, uh, esteemed Republican strategist, is here with us as well. And there he is, the last piece of the puzzle, Matt Bennett, is with us as well from Third Wave. And um, we're going to get started. I think we may have another panelist uh, to join us, but um, we're going to get uh, things moving and keep things moving. Uh, as, as was mentioned, all eyes are on the 2020 elections. There's a lot going on with it. And um, panelists, I want to start with you, uh, Senator. Uh, there's a question out there of what's going to happen. Everybody in this room, of course, is wondering. When we see two nearly closing in on two dozen Democratic candidates, is that a sign uh, that Demo uh, Democratic win is attainable and everybody kind of sees it and is jumping at it? Or are all these people kidding themselves? Tell, them, tell us what they're in for. Well, some of them are definitely kidding themselves. Uh, for a long time, I think people weren't sure whether Joe Biden was going to run. And the rise of people like Beto in the last cycle um, make a lot of people believe they could catch that moment and all of a sudden become a mayor from South Bend, Indiana that everybody's talking about. Um, having said that, uh, I, I think right now, honestly, it's Joe Biden's to lose. Uh, and Bernie is, um, Bernie is really the one that is, believe it or not, even though he's in double digits in the polls, I think he's in the worst shape because everybody knows who Bernie is, just like everybody knows who Joe Biden is. So it's not like people need to get familiar with Bernie Sanders. So the fact that he is so far behind Joe Biden um, the only way that Elizabeth Warren or some of the other candidates, I think, break through is for them to go after Bernie's voters and try to pull them off Bernie uh, to one of their candidacies, uh, be it Elizabeth Warren or Kamala or one of the other candidates. Um, so, but I will say this, all of you that are out there panicking about there being so many candidates, I'm going to tell you the glass is half full, not half empty. Whoever wins this thing is going to inspire people. Whoever wins this thing has an incredibly powerful tool that we did not have in 2016. And that is the uniting force of Donald J. Trump. <laughs> that is something that will make a huge difference for the people who are upset that Bernie doesn't make it, or upset that Elizabeth doesn't make it, or upset that Amy doesn't make it. Um, they all are worrying every day about allowing this guy one more minute than we have to in the Oval Office. Interesting. Now, Rick Tyler, uh, I assume, um, can offer a corrective uh, in the sense of it's not as easy as it might seem to defeat a Donald Trump. Rick Tyler, for those who don't know, was um, the campaign manager for Ted Cruz and took him all the way up to, uh, he was the last man standing, actually, out of a crowded, crowded field. What does that experience tell you about what's likely to happen? Well, the political world is a little bit upside down, right? And, and 
uh, we're in this um, undefinable period, and uh, people overuse the word unprecedented, but every day it's unprecedented. I think Donald Trump can certainly be beaten, but, but I'll take you back to election night. I was here in New York City, and I literally, I'm, I would guess a, a fair amount of the audience here in their close circles don't actually know anybody that voted for Donald Trump. Is that fairly accurate? <laughs> you, know some, you know some people? Well, the city seems shell-shocked because they, if you look at the numbers, they overwhelmingly voted for, for Donald Trump. But the thing is, is that I want to talk about binaries a little bit because we have every, everything in, uh, I like working on electricity because it's binary, it's on or off. You know, it's success or it's failure. Plumbing is the same way, it leaks or it's not. Political binaries are all work in the political world. We talk and we speak in binaries, and that is on immigration. You know, let everybody in, deport them by midnight. And I think the media contributes to that. But you can wake up in the morning as a Trump supporter and never hear a negative view about Trump, and you can walk, consume media all day long. You can wake up in the morning and never hear a positive thing about Trump all day long. And they're like two different universes. Now, I, I work on MSNBC with Senator McCaskill, and so we have one, one uh, predominant view on, on that network, but my father watches Fox News, and I, I listen to him, and I talk to him, and I say, Dad, when you turn the TV off, does it still say Fox News in the lower right-hand corner? Yeah, because it, li it literally will, he goes, no, I watch, MS I watch you on MSNBC, although I turn down the sound. So, <laughs> so what I'm saying is we don't talk to each other. Listening to him describe the events, the current events, as I understand them today, is like listening to news from another galaxy. It is, we are not talking to each other. And so, as, as a conservative Republican who now contributes political opinion on MSNBC, who's not a fan of Donald Trump, uh, I've spent a lot of time listening. Um, and I don't always agree with things I hear, but, but I think in this political context of the next election, I'm, I'm, I'm listening for Democrats who are listening to the people who voted for Donald Trump or the people who support Donald Trump because this republic is actually based on one word and, we, and neither side likes to talk about it and it's compromise. The whole system is based on having the people skills to be able to get things done and that requires, and you know this from being a legislator, I give you a little bit, you, get, you try to get more than the other guy and that's all deal making. But it can't be all or nothing. And so the Democrats have a huge opportunity to look at Republicans and independents who may have voted for Donald Trump or lean toward Donald Trump to say, I can't vote for him again, but give me something that I can work with. So now, uh, Congressman Israel, um, you were involved in the um, efforts by the Democratic Governors Association to target particular states. Say a word about, I guess, the, the stakes since yeah. we're going into a redistricting uh, season. And also, is it at all possible to perhaps gerrymander winnable seats, gerrymander moderates instead of extremists. Right now when you have sort of extreme gerrymandering, everybody's worried about their primary and it tends sure. to tug both sides to the extremes. Sure, well thank you. Let me make a few points. First let me tell you what a thrill it is to be here and to be with my former colleague, Senator McCaskill. Um, I don't know what your experience was. We left Congress at, at about the same time, January 3rd, 2017. Uh, after my 16 years in the House, I immediately went to my physician because I was experiencing these horrific pains in my face, and I learned that it was a smile. I hadn't done it in, in 16 years in Congress, so I hope your, your post-congressional life is as, as blessed I as I feel as guilty. I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
a couple points. Let me, Aaron, let me just pick up on something that Rick said because I th think he's absolutely correct and then within two minutes segue into your question about gerrymandering because I think it's actually relative. I think you are absolutely correct. Look, we are living in the most tribalized environment that we have lived in in a long time. Our media is tribalized. Our congressional districts are tribalized. As many of you know, I chaired the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. As the former chairman of the DCCC, I can tell you of the 435 districts in the House of Representatives, on a good day, all but 50 to 60 have been drawn either to the far right or to the far left. And so if you're an incumbent, you wake up, you're an incumbent Democrat in a far left district, you don't wake up fearing a Republican in a general election, you wake up fearing a Democrat in a primary from further to the left. And the same thing is happening with Republicans. They don't fear a Democrat in a general election, they fear a primary from the right. And they have a president who will seal the deal. A president who, if they cross him, will tweet disparaging comments or endorse that primary opponent. And that helps to explain the polarity that we have, the tribalization, our media. I also do MSNBC, not as regularly as you do. Uh, you know, we've got three tribes. We've got a Fox News tribe, we've got an MSNBC tribe, we have a CNN tribe. You and I did CNN together uh, at, at times. And so we're living in this highly tribalized, uh, polarized uh, environment. A good deal of it has to do with gerrymandering, to your point, that these districts have been drawn. But I think that that is a misread of the problem. Gerrymandering is a big part of the problem. But you know what the other big part is? We choose to live in certain areas. And so our country is almost, uh, we're, we're self-selecting. We're sorting ourselves out. The Cook Report, final, uh, final thought on this, uh, David Wasserman is an analyst for the Cook Report, and he put this in the best metaphor I've ever heard. He said, this country and its congressional districts is a collection of Cracker Barrel districts and Whole Foods districts. And he did an analysis. If you live within 100 miles of a Whole Foods store, the chances are your member of Congress is a Democrat. If you live within 100 miles of a Cracker Barrel, the chances are that your member of Congress is a Republican. If you live within 100 miles of either one, you're in a competitive district. By the way, when I presented this uh, before an audience in Washington, D.C., a woman stood up and she said, I, I reject that analysis, Congressman. I said, why? She said, it's not Cracker Barrel versus Whole Foods, it's Cracker Barrel versus Crate and Barrel. That's the better <laughs> So I think those, the, the, the convergence of those things explains where we are uh, and the need for Democrats to get on their game with respect to redistricting uh, when the census uh, uh, kicks in in 2020. To and to talk to people who go to Cracker Barrel. Uh, well, that's, that was our problem, I think. Yeah. 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 Yes, indeed. Um, Margaret Hoover, the um, host of Firing Line, has joined us. Very good to see you. Hi, Earl. Um, and, and in fact, um, talk a little bit about um, the Green New Deal, which is somewhat amorphous. There is a piece of legislation that's out there, or it's, it's political effects. I'm not going to ask you to recite it, obviously. Um, but it, it really stands for, if nothing else, an aggressive move away from fossil fuels. Uh, that seems to me at least a little bit incompatible with the Democratic desire to win back Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, other places that are uh, linked into it. When you're talking to folks about environmentalism, which everybody understands is a big issue mm -hmm. and of great concern mm -hmm. across, across the, uh, the, the, the political divide, how does it 
become something real that actually wins votes, wins elections, and takes us through 2020? Well, I, I, think, I think actually your question is very good. It, it is, how does it become something real? And after its, I mean, I think, sort of inglorious introduction, right? Because it was not met, it was met sort of with fawning attention. Um, I mean, of course, she, the, the exponent of the, the Green New Deal, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has all the star power that the Democratic Party could hope for right now. And uh, all the celebrity and the gravitas and the new face. Uh, but frankly, it, it, it fell on deaf ears, not because of Republicans, but because of Democrats. It was Nancy Pelosi who frankly decided that not to throw her arms around this in a full embrace. And Diane Feinstein. Feinstein, and frankly, you know, moderate Democrat members like Debbie Dingell from Michigan, who said, who went behind the scenes to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and said, let's sit down and really talk through how we can do this in a practical and pragmatic way. Um, now, the new member of Congress from Queens and the Bronx absolutely should plant the flag for the Green New Deal and far-left progressive policies, by all means, she can have that seat as long as she wants it. She could be 80 years old and still have that seat if she wants to. So she, she should probably play that role for the Democratic Party. But the Green New Deal, first of all, it was a resolution. Maybe there's a piece of legislation now. But this is not a pragmatic, if we talk about giving and taking and doing the things that, that Steve Israel and Claire McCaskill did in the Congress in order to get real things done, um, that was, you know, a firework shut off into the air. It wasn't a real first step forward in the direction of, of a piece of legislation that could be bipartisan, because mm -hmm. even if the, if the Republicans don't hold the Senate, you're still going to have to get some Republican votes in order to, to get a piece of legislation through uh, in, a next, in a next term. So look, Republicans laugh at it. You know, Republicans who are um, green Republicans think that there are really pragmatic and thoughtful ways to approach climate change, none of which were encompassed in the 10 principles of the Green New Deal. And, and moderate Democrats, frankly, feel very similarly. Right. So I don't, I don't think it's, it's um, I think it's a tool for organizing on the left more than it is a serious policy solution. Interesting. So if we um, set that aside, Matt Bennett, as a possible um, place for common ground for so-called purple issues, what are some other ones that are likely to maybe be politically salient and useful in the 2020 election? Well, I think uh, with very rare exceptions, presidential elections are always determined or always decided by economics, always. Um, even you could argue 2004, you know, two and a half, three years after 9-11 was, was really about whose economic narrative was most resonant. And so the thing that people need everywhere, in Missouri, in New York, everywhere, is a sense that their leaders understand the moment that we live in and have a vision for the future that includes them. And let me just give you one data point that really illustrates the problem people are grappling with. So going back to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she received a lot of attention because she drove 25,000 high-paying jobs out of her district. If you tried that in most districts, you would be dragged through the streets. Uh, but uh, Margaret's right, she, she will be reelected for sure, because here's why. The borough of Queens saw more job growth between 2005 and 2015 than Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania combined. 
just queens. So what has happened in the digital age and what was happening while President Obama was very successfully grappling with a crisis that was cyclical is that we've had this structural change in the economy. We've moved from an industrial economy to a digital global economy. And that has been very, very good for Queens and very, very bad for most other places in the United States. We've seen this unbelievable concentration of opportunity. So if you live in most places, it is extraordinarily hard, and it's going to be even harder for your kids to earn a middle-class life. Those are the things that people are really worrying about and grappling with. And whomever, whether it's Trump or the Democrat, whomever captures the imagination of people around those questions is going to win. Is, is there some objective truth here, though? I mean, I, I, you, know, you watch CNBC, and you look at your own you know, sort of uh, income and retirement plans, and you read what's in the paper, and you believe the statistics. Uh, one thing about the growing inequality is that some people are doing just fine. I've talked to people who said, I've never gotten a bigger refund. You know, they say this quietly because they're not supposed to like uh, Trump or the Republican Congress. Uh, uh, on the other hand, we do have deepening poverty. We have deepening inequality. Which one prevails? How does it play out? Is it, is it state by state? Is it district by district? Well, uh, I think what you've seen, it is a little of both. It's geographic and it's demographic. You've got to live in the right place and, and be lucky enough to be in the right demographic group and have the right kind of education. But keep in mind, only 20, 28% of the adult population in the United States has a four-year degree. 28%. About the same percentage have any savings at all. And so when you see the stock market doing well, that leaves out 70% of the public because they have no savings. People don't have pension plans anymore. They don't have retirement savings. So my fear as a moderate Democrat, like my colleagues here, uh, is that um, the Democratic candidates are living in kind of a blue bubble world where everybody has a college degree and everybody has savings and everybody is kind of secretly happy about the stock market. But that just isn't reality. Very interesting. Senator, Senator what would you advise um, the, the Democratic candidates who are running for president to know about Missouri, to know about uh, a clearly a swing state, literally a swing state? Used to be. Used to be. Oh, no, um, well, well, well yeah, t tell me. I mean, what, what's, what's going on? Well, you know, first of all, I would tell, uh, used to tell all my friends in Washington to quit, and this happens a lot where we are right now, and I'm claiming this where we are right now, part-time in my life, so I'm not mad at you, but it is amazing how many people in the country think anybody who voted for Donald Trump is an ignorant, racist homophobe. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's just not true. Uh, there were a whole lot of people that voted for Barack Obama twice yep. and voted for Donald Trump. Now, how does that happen? It's because of what Matt was referring to. If you've worked really hard for a decade and presidential candidates keep telling you, even one by the name of Barack Hussein Obama, that things are going to change and you are stagnating, and you are no farther ahead today than you were a decade ago, and you can't afford to retire, you can't afford to send your kids to college, you're, you're kind of angry, and you don't really know who to be mad at. And Donald Trump swooped in and demonized Hillary Clinton and gave him somebody to be mad at. No, 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 it wasn't the microchip that took your job, it was the Mexicans. 
And so it was almost as if I'm going to reject Hillary Clinton because she's been demonized and frankly now I don't trust her or like her, which is a big problem women, women candidates have. That's a whole other panel. But, um, it, and it's, it's really a frustration with the status quo that got Donald. And he was saying things that some of them have quietly said in sitting having a beer in the local bar out loud. You know, it's the Mexicans taking our jobs or it's the Muslims or, you know, it's the fear and anger piece. So how do we get those Obama voters back? I would tell every single Democratic candidate, figure out a way to get the Obama voter back. This is not a racist. This is not an ignorant person. This is someone who didn't like Hillary and thought they should pull the pin on the grenade and toss it into Washington because everything else they tried had not moved the needle. And so if everyone is thinking about those voters instead of the voters in Queens, who frankly are never going to deliver us majorities in the Senate, they're never going to deliver us majorities in Congress, the districts that are going to deliver us majorities and elect us president are going to be the districts where people don't have a very strong view of their life through a political party. And that's are the people in Missouri. I mean, it has traditionally been a swing state because there's lots of people that would vote for a Democrat and then a Republican. Last time around, not so much. Not so much. We now have no Democrats uh, in statewide office with the exception of one person. Three years ago, the majority of the statewide office holders were Democrats. Donald Trump has done that in our state. Uh, we can take it back, but we aren't going to do it by veering to the far left. It will not happen because those great big ideas like New Green Deal, Missourians are smart enough to know that's not going to happen. That's not going to pass. We've got to get down to the practical. Can we really hold pharmaceutical drug companies accountable and bring down the price of prescription drugs? Check, that's an Obama voter. Can we really you know, do something about repairing roads and bridges? Check, that's an Obama voter. Those are the issues that I think will win the day uh, for whoever our nominee is. That's how you're gonna to talk to those voters. Mm -hmm. Sorry I went on so long. No, no, not at all. I see uh, Congressman Israel nodding. Yeah, I, um, I want to agree and, and let me narrow it down uh, a little bit. Look, there. Um, the mistake that Democrats make and have made uh, is that we tend to see the world through our own experiences. There, there's a Brooklyn, New York. It's, who, who would, if this glass of water had a D on it, it would win an election yep. in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> there's a Brooklyn, Iowa. Brooklyn, Iowa was represented by a conservative Republican member of Congress for many, many years. It was flipped by a Democrat, right. one of 40 who flipped Republican districts in the midterm election. That Democrat did not talk about the Green New Deal. That Democrat did not talk about impeachment or investigation. Nope. That Democrat talked about trade and tariffs and crops and reducing prescription drug costs. And so we have to understand that this electorate is not the electorate that we're used to or that we experience, this electorate has to be seen through the prism of those battlefields of Missouri. This presidential election will be won in 20 counties across the country in about eight battleground states. I'm sorry to agitate you, but what we think and how we vote, irrelevant. Totally. How those 20 counties in those battleground states and that 20% of the population that is still undecided about Donald Trump, how they vote, 
that will determine who the next president is. Okay, I want to get one more a quick question in, and then we'll take your questions as well. We'll invite you to join the conversation. Um, I wanted to get from uh, Rick Tyler and from Margaret Hoover. On the Republican side, when I see a Bill Weld, former governor of Massachusetts, declare that he's going to run against Donald Trump. When I see Governor Kasich, I seem to get a lot of emails from him asking for money. I don't know why he'd be asking me for money other than he might be um, thinking about running as well. Is there a serious conversation and debate going on uh, in, on the Republican side, or is it more like, uh, let's duck and cover, try and get through 2020, and sort through whatever's left? Look, the, ma the, the, majority <laughs> yep. part, the majority of the Republican Party is not where I am. They, they want to reelect Donald Trump. And so, and, and it is now what Donald Trump claimed it was before. It's a rigged game. I mean, the, the RNC and the Trump campaign are indistinguishable. There is no chance for an outsider to beat him in a nomination. Um, but, but, but I want to I want to pick up on this point because I, I think that it, it's exactly right. Is is the there's an economic anxiety about people of my skin color, about my age, who all, who have no skills like me, right? They're very worried about this this transfer this from moving from what essentially the industrial age, the information age, to the maybe what is the uh, AI age or the robotic age. This is but this presents a huge opportunity for Democrats. Think about Donald Trump's language. Everything he talks about is regressive. Everything he talks about is the past. He talks about bringing back coal mine jobs, okay? Nobody wants to work in a coal mine. Coal miners don't want to work in a coal mine. Coal miners work in a coal mine so the kids don't have to work in coal mines, yeah. right? He's, and he talks this way about women, and he talks this way about race, and he talks this way about, uh, it just goes on and on and on and on. But there are people who are really worried, and I think the opportunity for Democrats is to understand how to combine the future, and if you want to talk about non-fossil fuel, that's, that's fine with me. I drive a plug-in hybrid, I recycle, I make as much dirt as anybody uh, by composting and all that. But I'm skeptical, about, I'm skeptical about the solutions to climate change. Although, let me defend the Green New Deal as a conservative Republican. It wasn't intended to be legislation, it was meant to be aspirational, and we should be aspirational. And we should be looking toward the future. And why do Republicans have to reflexively just be against the environment because a Democrat is for it? It just doesn't make any, it just makes zero sense. So if you combine technology, the future, the jobs those will produce, because if the Democrats are anxious, those ones you want to win back are anxious about the future, and they don't hear the solution of how this new economy, how this new robotic automation is going to be better for them, because historically it always has been. Um, they're going to stick to what they know. Can I just, I'll just, um, follow. there won't be a serious challenge to President Trump on the Republican side because, as Rick said, and we all, I think, know and acknowledge, Donald Trump has changed the center of gravity in the Republican Party. He's changed the meaning of what conservatism is. And nobody can mount a serious challenge to him politically because. The base of the party is with him, and by the way, it's more than the base of the party. I mean, Rick and I are total outliers. Maybe we're, ten, I mean, it's 88% of Republicans are still with Everybody's him. Everybody's so different. Above 83% of the, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so the question is, you know, what happens after Trump? If the question you're asking is what happens after, to the Republican Party after Trump, people like us just pick up the pieces. The, the, the problem is there won't be much to pick up and put back together if there isn't somebody who's willing to mount a principled challenge to the president for the principles that Republicans and conservatives have supposedly stood for for so long. And, and, and that's why I actually think it would be, it, Bill Weld is gonna do it, uh, but I think 
you know, somebody like a John Kasich, somebody who could really articulate what it was to be a conservative Republican and what the, you know, the, <laughs> the adherence to fiscal responsibility, for example, that has completely gone it's by gone. the wayside, right? Which moderate Democrats agree on, right? And, and all the, sure the tenets of Reagan Republicanism, right? Like a, a strong and robust foreign policy, an economic uh, responsibility, sense of economic responsibility free to trade. future generations, to free trade, to pro-immigration, immigration reform, right? To the reformers, not the not the um, uh, the people who are who are stuck in the past. And so, look, the Republican Party is in a, in a sore spot because they're they're really just there's no political opportunity for that, and there's nobody with the courage of their principles to to do that. Okay, we have um, a few minutes for some questions. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you made the point that 28% uh, of people uh, have college degrees, 28% have college degrees, 70% have uh, no savings. And so we need to be attentive to those people and their issues. My question is, and, and the recommendation is get the Obama voters. My question is why are the Republicans who are well-educated and do have savings, they like the stock market, that's good, but why do they accept the uh, behavior and character? Why aren't those voters disgusted by the non-stock market variables? Oh, they are. Oh, that's that's but, why, that's why we took the House. Um, you know, the voters, that, you know, it wasn't AOC that took the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. It was the 40 members who were veterans, who were nurses, who were running in suburban, highly educated districts. Blue dogs. Where the, actually the college-educated voter that Matt referred to voted for someone who was going to stand up to Trump because they're disgusted by the behavior of Donald Trump. But, so we're getting those voters. But why isn't that? A, a successful presidential strategy. That it, it is. Could be. It depends. That, that is exactly a. And by the way, some of those voters did vote for Donald for Barack Obama too. So, but you, that is a successful strategy, and I think that's one of the things that Joe Biden gets, and I think some of the other candidates get too. We'll see. It, it you know, there's a, so much pulling to the left in the primary process that we forget that we need those college-educated Republicans who do not want to put up with another four years of exhausting chaos coming out of the Oval Office. Mm. Right? Yeah, Sir. 100%. I'd look over to Margaret and Rick and make You're sure right. I'm okay You're on the Republican right. stuff. <laughs> what she said. <laughs> what she said. My, I've heard the problems with running for office. What are the, if I may use the phrase that we used earlier, what are the purple solutions? Where, where should the candidate, what is, how can you articulate what the candidate should stand for, whether it's the environment or fiscal responsibility, as versus just talking about the problems? See, let me, let me uh, jump in on that. All, remember when Tip O'Neill said all politics is local? Speaker Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. So is message. So is what you say as a candidate. You have to think of, of uh, political messaging the way you would think about driving across the country, right? You're in a car, you're driving across the country. In some neighborhoods along the interstate, all you're getting is country music on your radio. In some neighborhoods, you're getting NPR. That's the state of the electorate. Mm -hmm. And so my advice to House candidates when I chaired DTRIP and even after was just 
message to your voters and don't talk about anything that those voters aren't bringing up with you. When you stand at a supermarket, before you decide what to say, listen and respond to their priorities. These are smart voters. The other thing I would say is in characterizing the electorate, and I agree with Claire that the Democrats, I think, have made a huge mistake in writing off that segment of the electorate as, for example, deplorable. Those voters, if you want to get a sense of how volatile they are in their own opinions, in 2008, they voted for Barack Obama. In 2010, many of those same voters voted for Tea Party Congress to stop Barack Obama. In 2012, many of those same voters voted to re-elect Barack Obama. In 2016, they voted for Donald Trump. And in 2018, they voted for Nancy Pelosi's Democratic majority. So they themselves have a volatility to their opinions, to their outlook. And good candidates have to embrace that volatility and talk about things that those people are addressing at their dinner tables. Nothing else matters, in my view, to those voters. Let me just, I agree with that very much as it relates to House candidates and, and other local candidates. But I think if you're thinking about the presidential candidates, um, I would offer two, two ideas. One is that uh, Americans are obsessed with the concept of earning their way. Uh, Pew does a poll every year of the OECD countries, and they ask people all over the industrial world uh, what they value. And one of the things they ask about is, do you value earning a living? And in France, 25% of people say they value earning a living. So <laughs> this won't work in France. Uh, in the United States, it's 77%. Yeah. Put it at, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, they put it at a 10. So uh, as people who have been in the arena can tell you, you can't make a, a, there's no higher praise than that person provides for their family, for their community. So, and works hard. Ex and works hard. So what we have to offer is a narrative that is about offering people the opportunity to earn a good life where they live. One other piece of insight that we've gotten in the last couple of years, in the 20th century we thought of ourselves, and certainly in the 19th century, we thought of ourselves as a very itinerant country. We were headed for the, first we were headed for the frontier, and then we were on the move. That is no longer the case. People like where they live, and they do not want to move. And the fact that opportunity has become concentrated in places like this poses a real challenge. So I think what uh, a presidential candidate has to do is talk about ensuring the opportunity to earn a good life wherever you live. Can I just put a quick point on super, what super both quick. of you said, super quick, what both of you said, I couldn't agree with more, but here's, here's what I think as we think about 2020 in this room, to the extent that we're going local, I think there are seven states, I don't mm -hmm. even think it's eight, I think there are seven states where that local message is up for grabs. Every other state, we know it's gonna go red or blue, okay? It's Arizona, Florida, Michigan, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, okay? Ohio? Not Ohio. Ohio's going Trump. That's, I'm, I'm going to call it now. I think Ohio's a red state, just like yeah. Missouri is now. She's wrong on that. I do. I, I, I agree do. with you. Make it eight. So, so, so maybe you can call it eight. I, I just, I do. I think it's, Seven I think the dynamics are. So, so maybe it's eight. Okay. But so at Ohio, for the purposes of at Ohio, okay. But what they just said is all politics is local. All the messaging is local. You're asking what issues are relevant. It's, it, it doesn't matter what, what we think the national issues are or the national polling is. All we should be looking at if we care about what's going to happen in the primary process in 2020 is what are the polls in those eight states and what are the issues in those eight states. And remember, Donald Trump won by 78,000 votes in three states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. 
Those are the ones where it's where are, are Democrats going to recoup those 78,000 votes. Okay. That is going to be the last word. I think we'll continue this in the green room. But uh, please join me in thanking our panel, Margaret Hoover, Rick Tyler, Steve Israel, Matt Bennett, Senator Claire McCaskill.